We are continuing our study in the book of Romans. Um, I have been in this section of Scripture. This is the third week, and the reason we are lingering here is that uh, we're getting close to the end of Romans and don't know what we're doing next. That's not really the reason. Maybe, no, it's not partially true even. Um, The reason is that this text is so rich, and I have just felt like that as I've studied and prepared and looked at this text that there are so many things that need to be brought out. And so this morning, we're going to hang out here again. Last week, last week we spent time talking about the stronger brother and how how he is to be one who loves and accepts and shows hospitality to the weaker brother. And this week, we're going to we're going to see the negative side of that. When I say negative, I'm not meaning bad, but we're going to see the do not. So the stronger brother is not to do something, and we're going to look at that this morning. But before we jump into that, uh, we've got to do a little bit of uh, 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 rehearsal here or go back and look at what is going on in the text. And what we have is that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome. There's a dispute that's going on, and you've got a group of people, Jewish brothers and sisters, who are saying that it is wrong to eat meat. And so, not only are they saying it's wrong to eat meat, but they are observing certain days, and you have a group that is saying, there's nothing wrong with eating meat. And so Paul is writing them and talking to them about how to handle these matters. And one of the things that we've laid out over and over again, and we've, we've got to make sure we understand this as we go this morning, is that when, when Paul is writing to the church at Rome, he's writing on what I have been calling secondary issues. That is, non-doctrinal, non-divisive issue, issues. So there are issues that we wouldn't see in the text, you know, where it says, you know, God says, thou shalt not. We're not to be divided over those. The Scripture gives us a way when there is sin or where there is a doctrinal issue, the Bible gives us a way to go in and to deal with that and, and to hit that head on. Paul is not talking about one of those issues this morning or in the text, and we're not going to be talking about one of those issues this morning. Now today, today one of the things that, that I, wanna, I want you to see in the text and I want to spend some time us, us learning together about is the role of conscience in a Christian's life. Very kind of complicated issue, and we could spend weeks and weeks talking about this, but I want to talk about the role of conscience in a Christian's life. Now, that word, it's used a lot in the New Testament. It's not used in this section, but I want you to to listen as I read some verses um, from past weeks and then from this week, and I want you to hear uh, how we come to the understanding that Paul is talking about the conscience here. In verse 5, it says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Hear this. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord. He does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. Fast forwarding to verse 14. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in, an, in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And then again in verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. 
and whatever is not from faith is sin. And so what's clear is what Paul is talking about is a matter of conscience. Um, there's a really good book by two men by the name of Nacelli and Crawley on conscience, and I would recommend it to you. It's an easy read. Uh, if you are interested in this topic, I would, uh, and I can get you the title of it later because I'm forgetting it now, but it's a great read on this subject. But they define conscience as this. It's the consciousness of what you believe or knowing the thinking about what you believe. Thomas Aquinas, a famous theologian, says this about conscience. It is the God-given inner voice that either accuses or excuses us in what we do. This is not the um, devil and uh, angel on our shoulders that are whispering in our ears at times. This is what we believe about what we believe. What we believe about what's right and wrong. That is, when, when that is uh, activated, that is our conscience. Now, Martin Luther famously talked about his conscience when he was at the Diet of Worms, or Worms, I guess is what it really would be in German. Uh, that's the extent of my German. Um, but when he was, he was being put on trial, uh, and when he was, thought he was potentially facing execution, here is, he was asked to recant, and here is what he famously said. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Notice this sentence. To act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Now, when we look at chapter 14 of the book of Romans, I think this is where uh, Martin Luther got this idea of it's neither right nor safe. And we'll unpack that in a minute. Now, the problem is, is that our conscience can't always be our guide, as the song goes, because our conscience is not what it's supposed to be. Our conscience has been marred by sin in the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul lays this out for us. Listen as I read some verses in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 25. Because that which is known about God is evident, notice this, within them, so God has put something within them that makes it what is known about God evident. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So in other words, that our conscience is a God-given thing, but because of sin in the world, our consciences are, are not what they're supposed to be. They're, they're seared. They're, they're part of our body structure that has been affected by sin. And I want to give you an example. Um, this past week, um, the United Methodist Church met for uh, an emergency meeting uh, discussing whether or not they were going to ordain uh, LGBTQ uh, ministers. I think I got all the letters. Now, what was interesting is that the Council of Bishops put up three options. One option was the conservative option, which said uh, that, um, that we believe in the Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture and that we are not to ordain 
uh, men or women who are LGBTQ. The third option was called the progressive option, is what I think they called it, and that is, is that they were going to uh, uh, freely ordain LGBTQ folks for ministry. Now, the interesting thing is that the bishops were recommending a second option. And this option would have left decisions up to um, particular areas and uh, uh, churches themselves. So you can kind of choose what you want. Now, what's interesting is, do you know what the first option to be voted out was? It was that second compromise option. Now, why? The reason is, is the conviction on the two other sides of that issue, of its biblical of, hey, this is what's right, this is, this is what we believe what's right, those convictions won the day in eliminating the second option. In other words, they were saying, we can't compromise on this issue. It's too important to us. So, the question I want to ask, if you were to ask the delegates who voted here, do you think that they would have said that they were voting according to their conscience? Yes. The second question. Is one of those options wrong according to the Scriptures? Yes. And so what's going on? <laughs> what's going on is that the consciousness, the conscience of those folks were not informed by Scripture and were seeing things in a different way even though they had deeply held convictions on that issue. Now, again, as we are getting into our sermon today, when we're talking about conscience and the issue that's in our text, is it an issue like that, a primary issue? No. This is a secondary issue. These folks were arguing about whether or not to eat meat, okay? So I want to keep that in our focus, even as I use that as an example of that our consciences can be seared. Because if it was a primary issue, what Paul would have done is he would have called the elders of the church to do the Matthew 18 thing, to try to bring about um, the brothers who were in the wrong to come back around, the, the, the ones who were violating scriptures. He would have said, you elders, go restore them. And that's not what Paul does here. Paul's, Paul, does, Paul goes the exact other way. Way. So, the goal today is for us to see how the strong can help with the unity of the church, where the strong can help the weaker brother, whose conscience is wrong over secondary issue, but how the strong can help that brother grow in his faith and grow in his sanctification. So that's, the, that's what we're going to see this morning. And so we've got some work to do to get there. And the first thing that the strong have to do that jumps out of our text is that the strong must understand. And, and I want us to get this. In our text this morning, the strong must understand that for the weaker brother, it is a sin to eat the meat. And I want to, we've got to understand why. Okay? This is so vitally important. So look at verse 14. Paul says, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. So what Paul is saying is that there is nothing wrong with the meat. 
The weak brothers were saying, it's unclean and therefore by eating it, it will defile me. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That meat will not defile you. Eating the meat will not defile you. But, Paul doesn't leave it there. But, to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So Paul is doing something very interesting here. By using this Old Testament language and sticking with this Old Testament language, what he is telling the strong brothers, and what we need to know is Paul is saying, there's nothing wrong with the meat, but if somebody eats that meat and thinks it's unclean, they're defiled. The meat didn't have anything to do with it. Something else is going on here in the text. Because that which has no power to defile, the meat has no power to defile, defiles. Let's look at verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Again, Paul says again, all things indeed are clean. Notice the wording. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Again, Paul is saying there is nothing wrong with the meat. But if you think there's something wrong with the meat and you eat it anyway, it's evil for you. Interesting, huh? (laughs) A lot of times we don't think about sin in this way. Let's look at verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned, condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, this... If, if, we're, if we're hanging with this, and if we really look at this, what begins to emerge and what we begin to see, what Paul is saying is, is really hit at the crescendo in verse 23. He is condemned because he's not eating from faith. Now, what this is not saying, I don't know if any of y'all have heard this. I've heard this verse misapplied, um, meaning that um, if I'm trying to make the decision whether or not to walk off the stage, if I haven't said, Jesus, can I walk off the stage? that that's not from faith, and so I just need to stay put until I hear from Jesus. That's not what this text is about. I don't know if any of you have heard the misreading of that text in that way. What this text is talking about is if we go back to verses 6 through 8, we won't reread those, but if if we were to look back at those texts, what Paul is saying is that the person who is deciding to eat, he is doing so to honor the Lord. The person who's not eating, he is doing so to honor the Lord, that the glory of the Lord, the honor of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord is motivating these brothers whether to do something or to not do something. And so if somebody believes in their heart that eating meat is wrong, we're not talking about that they've changed their mind and then eat meat. You you with me here? So what we have is the brother who has not changed his mind, but he believes that it's wrong to eat meat. If this brother, who believes it's wrong to do something, does it anyway, he has defiled himself. That's a sin. We understand that? It's not saying that this brother, who believes it's wrong to eat meat, is discipled by another brother, he's looking at scriptures, realizes, oh, it's okay to eat meat. If he then eats the meat, he's fine. Do we understand that? Do we get what's going on in the text? Vitally important. Vitally important. This is why, this is why Martin Luther can say to go against his conscience is not right. 
because he is convinced in his conscience that what he is doing is right. Therefore, to violate it would be a violation not only against himself, but against God. So, it is a direct, willful decision to please yourself versus pleasing God because in his mind, he thinks that pleasing God is not eating meat. So the second thing we must see, and this is where things get even a little more crazy. The second thing we see is the strong must be careful not to cause the weak to stumble. The strong person's actions must not cause or entice the weak person to sin or defile themselves. And you're saying, Lewis, how in the world can this be? But before we get there, let's look at the verses. 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Again, we are not talking about, um, if, if Gary and I were, if I'm going to just make Gary the weaker brother, I heard some amens on that. No, just teasing. If Gary and I were having the conversation about meat and through some discipleship, Gary determines in his own mind that it's okay to eat the meat, I didn't cause him to stumble. The causing to stumble would be if he still determined that it's wrong to eat meat and there are actions that I do that lead to enticing him to eat meat, therefore violate his conscience, I have caused a brother to stumble. And that is a very serious and grave thing. And so, you may ask, how in the world could we do that? And, you know, one of the things that I always laugh at is that, you know, a lot of times we just talk to teenagers about peer pressure. Like it's only a teenager issue. It's an adult issue. We cave to peer pressure all the time. We get put in situations all the time where we're afraid, oh, do I do this, do I not do this? And then a lot of times we will go with the peer pressure. And so I think what Paul is talking about is never putting the weaker brother in a position where they feel pressured, where they feel the only way to fit in, where they feel the only way to please the stronger brother is to eat the meat. I think especially in a church, it's important that leadership understands this and thinks through this so that we don't unintentionally cause a brother or sister in the Lord to do something that they don't normally want to do. I'll give you a silly example. Amy Grays puts together the movie nights that we have in the summer times. She always comes to me and runs the movies that we watch by me. And we, the conversation always goes something like this. Hey, I've got these three movies. This one, I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's fine for me. I'd let my kids watch it. But there may be some that this thing in here may offend. Let's just stay away from it. Because what I wouldn't want to happen is for us to gather under the pavilion as a church family and something be in one of these kids' movies that violates the conscience of a weaker brother and for you to have to make a decision, do I stay or do I awkwardly leave? We just don't want that. So we're trying to remove stumbling blocks. Does that make sense? 
Now, what I want you to notice, and I pointed this out last week, notice the strong language in this text. In verse 15 and verse 20. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Notice this. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, might you think that this word destroy means something uh, less like destroy? This is the same word. It's used a lot in the New Testament, but just one example, two examples. One is, you know, uh, when Jesus says... Um, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy both your body and soul and hell. That's the word. Again, in the New Testament, where it's talking about that Herod was seeking out to destroy, to kill the infants, same word. This is a very strong word in the Greek language. Again, in verse 20, we have some strong wording here. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. And then later on, we have that word, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Now, in verse 15, the word destroy, the, the parallel, there's a parallel text, and it's not the exact same. And I've tried to make this point when the first preaching on this text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'll read it for you. Here, Paul is talking about food sacrificed to idols. And in the church at Corinth, there was a divide about eating that meat as well. And hear what Paul says. You'll notice some similar things. In verses 11 through uh, 13. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. That's the word. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when, he, when it is weak, you sin against Christ Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul is serious about this issue. This is heavy wording. This is heavy stuff. And you are probably asking the question of how can eating lead to this? And here's what I want you to think about. Take the whole idea of eating meat out of your mind for a minute. Because Paul is, the meat issue is secondary to Paul. The idea that Paul is trying to express in this letter written to the church at Rome is this whole idea that if your brother is willing to willfully sin against the commandment of God, that that can lead to his ruin. So the danger spot for the Christian, for any of us, is when we are consciously, willingly making decisions to sin, to violate God's Word. And for all of us, that will lead to our ruin. That will lead to a pattern of life that leads to destruction when we violate our consciences, we are training ourselves to override our convictions. I want you to hear me. When we violate our conscience, 
and willfully sin, we are training ourselves, we're training ourselves to override our conviction. And that is bad. Parents, isn't this what we teach our kids? Isn't this what scares us as parents when we start to see a pattern of behavior in our children where they're willing to willfully go against maybe what we've asked them not to do? And then what is the question that we begin to ask ourselves? Where else might they compromise? What else might they be into? Because we know there's something inherent in us that tells us that if we're willing to walk in this, that what happens is our consciences get seared we don't think like we should, and then we, that whole adage of sin takes us further than we want to go and costs us way more than we want to pay. This is important stuff. This is a big deal. And this is why Luther said, not only did Luther say violating his conscience isn't right, this is why Luther says violating his conscience isn't safe. Because willfully going against God is not safe for a Christian. I want to turn to Jesus' words just for a moment in the book of Mark and just listen as I read to you here. In Mark chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man is what defiles the man. If anyone has ears, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about this parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart. And then Paul gives us an uh, anatomy lesson here. But it goes into his stomach and then is eliminated. Kids, you can ask your parents what that means later. And you can say we've talked about poop in church. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is not what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, theft, murders, and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. So in other words, if the weaker brother in this passage is deciding to go against his conscience because he has not yet come to the place where he thinks that eating meat is okay, then what's going on is it's evidence that in his heart something bad is going on. Covetousness. Desire to fit in. Some sort of sinful pattern that left unchecked will ruin him as a Christian. And so, the strong are asked, are commanded, don't put anything in front of this brother that could destroy him. Now, do you see how this can destroy a Christian's walk? Do you see how this can just destroy a Christian's influence if left unchecked? This pattern of sinful behavior? This pattern of violating their conscience of, of where it can lead? I think it's pretty easy to see. I don't think this is talking about a loss of salvation. The reason is, is because Paul is, I think, pretty meticulous to tell us that. In chapter 14, verse 4, listen. Who are you to judge the servant of another? 
to his own master he stands or falls. And then notice Paul says this, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. In chapter 15, verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another to Christ Jesus, that God who grants perseverance. But I do think this is talking about the ineffectiveness of a brother or sister in the Lord. And if you don't care whether or not you're effective for the Lord, then there's something deeper wrong that we need to have a conversation about. So, so how do we, as, how do the strong deal with the weaker brother? Again, verse 13, verse 19, verse 22. Oh, let me get to the right chapter. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. And then in verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so, what are we supposed to do as a stronger brother? Are we just supposed to try to pad things for the weaker brother? So they never have to run against anything that may be difficult for them. Is that what Paul is saying? And I want to say, absolutely not. Here's what I want you to think about. Paul wrote this letter to Rome. We know what was done with the letters that Paul wrote. They were read. Yes, and they were read to the church. Now, in the church at Rome... Do you think this letter was just read to the strong in the Lord? So as this scripture is being read, it's being read to the strong and the weak. Notice what Paul is doing here. As Paul is writing this letter, and he knows that there are brothers in the audience who are weak, he over and over and over again says, there's nothing wrong with the meat. There's nothing wrong with the meat. The meat can't defile you. As he's saying to the strong, don't put an obstacle in this brother's way. Give. Don't eat the meat, strong. Do whatever. And so what is going on here is Paul, in writing this letter, is instructing both the weak and the strong because he cares about their building up. And so we have to ask the question, why is a weaker brother weak? And and I thought of four potential things. One is that oftentimes a weaker brother is a new believer. This is, I think, probably the most common thing that you see is that you have a new believer who really wants to please the Lord and so they just go all legalistic real quick. I see this over and over again and you've got to spend time with that brother or sister to help them, you know, uh, help them learn. They just don't know the Scriptures that well. I think another option is that you know, a, a brother and sister in the Lord can come from a situation, come from a family, come from a church where there's been poor teaching. They can come from an environment where something has been taught wrong for a number of years as the gospel. And so you can have a weak brother or sister in the Lord. There can be just a general lack of knowledge. In, in this day and age... You know, Paul was writing, there was no New Testament. Paul was writing the new, helping write the New Testament. And so, 
we see this lack of knowledge that was coming in. And so a weaker brother, in my mind, these are the four ways that someone can be a weaker brother, and the goal is not to leave them there. But what we have to be very careful with is how we help them to mature in the faith. The worst thing in the world can be a church that only has weaker brothers in it. That's why these commands, and that's why I wanted to hover here for so long, is that those of you who are strong in the faith, the worst thing you can do is isolate a weaker brother because they're going to go join a church that believes with them, and that sets up generations of patterns and behaviors that can be very damaging and very constricting. So the goal is not to leave them there. My dad, uh, when he became pastor of a, the first church he became a pastor of here in Chattanooga, um, he, he tells me that he went into a Sunday school class, a men's Sunday school class, that had the newest member of that Sunday school class had joined uh, 30 years prior. That was the, the newest member. They had been meeting, most of them had been meeting, he told me, for 45 years. He... He, he did a survey of all the Sunday school classes to try to just get a grasp of where the church was, and this Sunday school class scored the worst of basic biblical knowledge of, of anybody else in the church. When he went into the Sunday school class, he found out why, because the Sunday school class was a conversation uh, about the weekend's football game. Now, these guys love getting together, but when problems arose in this church, do you know who the main movers and shakers in the problems were? The Sunday school class. <laughs> Whose spiritual development had just stopped. And so th- there was nobody over those years that loved these brothers enough to, to, to help them and to, to, to um, push them along. Now, going back to the idea of conscience conscience, that word in the Greek is mentioned over 31 times in the New Testament. And as we've seen, your conscience can be seared. It can be desensitized by sin. It can be wrong. But thank the Lord, it can also be changed. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. And the formula... (laughs) It's simple. For a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells you, and one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to inform and change your conscience. And the way that that happens is that the Holy Spirit inside of you interacts with the Word that is being put in you, and it changes your conscience so that Paul can say things like this, have the mind of Christ. That that change can take place and our conscience can become a more reliable source to help us to live out um, what we are supposed to do in the world. The Word and the Holy Spirit changes us. In Rome, they were receiving the Word for the building up of the saints, that the Holy Spirit does that. Now, I want to give two examples um, real quickly. Uh, one, and, and one of you, and I'm not going to name, I'm not going to name either one by names. This, these examples come from two of you all. One was a con- both of them were just conversations and they didn't even know that I was mentally taking notes. So now you're going to be careful. 
But uh, one of you I was having a conversation with, and we were having a conversation about somebody who had um, a, a public figure um, who uh, didn't take a great stand as they were asked some questions about some biblical truths. And one of you, as I was talking about that, uh, said to me something that really stuck with me. And I'm like, man, that's a strong brother. Of saying, you know, we don't know why this person wasn't able to make that stand. They may not know the word very well. They may not have been taught very well. They may not have ever thought about those issues before. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I was just ready to condemn that person. The other one, and and this is an example of how I think we should deal with this, and I'm going to change the scenario up a little bit, but um, one of you came to me after the sermon last week and uh, talked about, uh, last week I mentioned that one of the things that we need to keep in mind were cross-cultural barriers, that there are some cultural things that seep into the life of the church that kind of become doctrine. And so let's just pretend, this is not the issue, but let's pretend, Let's pretend for a minute that the issue is is that uh, let's say that there is a that, that that I go on to the mission field to be a pastor of a church on a mission field, and as I get there to the church, um, it is in their doctrinal statement that you are to wear your Sunday best. You are to wear a tie. Don't amen, Gary, as you preach. Now, me being fully convinced that all things are good, my I am free in the Lord. <laughs> All of a sudden, I have a choice to make. The wrong thing to do would be for me to come in like this and begin to browbeat these brothers and sisters about the freedom that they have in Christ and begin to point out passages of where they're wrong. And one of the reasons that that's wrong is that they're never going to hear me. And so as an example to you of what you should do, I wore a tie this morning. See my socks? There are ties all over this sock. There are ties on my side. But what do you do in that scenario? And here's what you do in that scenario. You wear the tie. You dress like they want you to dress. And you teach the Word. You teach the Word. You preach the Word. You preach the Word. You preach justification by faith. You preach verse by verse through the Bible because I believe that the power of of the Word combined with the Holy Spirit changes hearts and minds. And that's the kind of change we want to see in a church. Not some flavor or some thing that Lewis may like. We want to see the Word transformed lives. And if we preach the Word correctly and accurately, if the Holy Spirit is alive in you, as you go through any study or anything in the Word, you're going to be convicted and you're going to change, and you're going to notice, oh, I was a weaker brother on this issue. That's how this works. And so what I want to ask you this morning is this. We're going to simply end like we did not too long ago, except I want to give one more, uh, I want to add one more thing to this. And, And that is, a couple weeks ago we ended this. I asked you if you loved your brother enough if you loved your brother enough to be hospitable and love him in this kind of way. I want to lean in just a little bit more and ask this. This is the question that Paul is asking. 
Are you so filled? Are you so overwhelmed by what God has done for you in Christ that you love your brother to the point that you will lay aside your rights for the sake of your brother or sister growing in their faith? Do you love your brother or sister enough that you're willing to lay aside your rights so that your brother or sister may grow in the faith? This is hard for us as Americans. Our country was founded that we are given certain unenalienable rights and that we are owed those no matter what and we will fight you for them. And what the Scripture tells us to do or asks us is, do you love your brother enough to put aside those rights in order for them to grow? Do you have the sake, do you have the heart that Paul has when he says, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat it again. Because that's more important. Let's pray.